Here's another Bible study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. All right, so we are in Jonah, and we're in the second chapter of Jonah, Jonah chapter 2. And if you recall, we, last week we talked about Jonah's disobedience. Uh, the Lord had commanded him to go to Nineveh to preach against the Ninevites. We'll talk about that again a little bit. Uh, but Jonah disobeyed, and uh, and then he was finally he was trying to go the other way. He was on a ship on the way to um, uh, Tarshish. And, uh, and anyways, uh, the uh, God caused a storm, and uh, you know the story. We'll, again, we'll talk about it more later on. But uh, chapter 2 is basically Jonah's prayer uh, inside the belly of a, of a great fish. We don't know if it's a whale or not, but the, inside the belly of this fish. And, uh, and so, you know, it's kind of interesting, because I've taught through the book of Jonah before, and uh, I think this, this time I've got a little bit of a different take on, the, on Jonah chapter 2. And uh, I'm not the fount of all wisdom and knowledge, so um, it's good that you have your Bible, so you can be a Berean and, 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 and check what I say and see if I'm, see if I'm off or not. I pray that I'm not. But uh, I, I think there's something missing in Jonah's prayer. And uh, it kind of struck me as I went through studying it this, this time through. And so really uh, my, my, my theme or whatever for this morning is the missing component in Jonah's prayer. So like I said earlier, Jonah was told by the Lord to go to Nineveh to proclaim God's judgment against them for their wickedness. And, and if you know anything about Nineveh or the Assyrians, uh, they were very cruel. Um, they were very violent people. In fact, they were probably the original ISIS of their day. And uh, anyways, in Jonah uh, chapter, four, uh, chapter 4, verse 2, um, he explains that he's, he's not afraid that his mission to Nineveh is going to succeed. He actually is afraid... Uh, that it's not going to succeed. He's actually afraid that it is going to succeed and that uh, the, the Ninevites will uh, repent and God will spare them from judgment. And, and he hates the Ninevites um, because of their wickedness. And so Jonah disobeys the Lord. And what's interesting, if you go through, and there's only four chapters of the book of Jonah, but if you go through and read the book of Jonah, if you think about it, everything in the book of Jonah obeys the Lord God. What I mean by that is God caused the storm. The storm obeyed Jonah, or excuse me, obeyed the Lord. The sailors end up obeying the Lord. At the end of chapter 1, they offer sacrifices and vows to the Lord. Um, the great fish, again, we don't know if it's a whale or not, but the, the fish, I, I might call it a whale, and you guys know it's, it could or could not be a whale. It's just, it's easier for me to say than the great fish. So um, the whale or the great fish, that obeyed the Lord. In fact, the Ninevites obeyed the Lord. We'll see that in chapter 3 next week. In chapter 4, the plant obeys the Lord. And even the worm that destroys or eats up the plant, that obeys the Lord. And in fact, the east wind obeys the Lord. So everything you look through the book of Jonah obeys the Lord, except for one thing, and that is the prophet of the Lord God, Jonah himself. He's the only thing or only person that disobeys the Lord in the book of Jonah. So we see, and we talked about Jonah's disobedience um, in chapter 1. But throughout this chapters of uh, 1 through 4, we're also going to see God's sovereignty. 
God's sovereign will. As I mentioned earlier, in verse 4, we know that God caused the storm that was on the sea, the Mediterranean Sea as Jonah's trying to flee from the presence of the Lord. Psalm 107.25, For he commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the New Apostolic Reformation. It's, a, it's, kind of, it's, a, it's not an association. It's not a de, uh, denomination. It's a group, kind of a networking of people that believe a certain way. And one of the things that the New Apostolic Reformation teaches is that if man is sufficiently anointed by the Spirit, he can command the weather. He can control weather by commanding it. And I was thinking about that. I'm thinking, you know, I'm reading here in chapter 1 that God appointed this storm. So under the understanding or the beliefs of the new apostolic reformation, someone, if they were anointed enough with the Spirit, they could command that storm to cease. But, you know, if they did do that, they'd be going against the sovereignty of God because God caused this storm for a purpose. He caused it not just for Jonah. We, we know that he caused it in Jonah's life. But think about the sailors on the ship. They became a believers in God when they saw the miraculous uh, calming of the storm. And so God caused the storm. God also caused the lot to fall on Jonah. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that God condones gambling. Um, but, um, you know, God controls things. And, and the lot, and as we talked about it last week, it fell on Jonah. God caused it to fall on Jonah by his sovereign power and his sovereign will. God also, in chapter 1, we read, kept the mariners from reaching shore. They did not want to throw Jonah into the water. They wanted to spare him. And so they're trying to row to land to get him to land. And uh, God kept them, we said, we read in chapter 1. God kept them from actually reaching the shore. And, of course, Proverbs 16.9 says, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. You know, sometimes we fight hard against the Lord, trying to go our way. God's going to direct our steps. God also caused the storm to cease immediately after they threw Jonah overboard. Psalm 107.29, he calms the storm so that its waves are still. So all these things God did in his sovereign power and his sovereign will. God also, at the end of chapter 1, appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. Excuse me. And the word appointed, uh, it, it could be, you could translate it or understand it as being ordained or to weigh out or to allot. And, or in, in specifically to a lot for, for a specific purpose. And so this great fish was appointed, ordained, or allotted by God for this specific purpose to swallow Jonah. And that makes me wonder, when was he allotted? When, when was he ordained? Or when was he, you know, was it just a fish swimming by? And God said, oh, hey, by the way, swallow this guy. Or was this little, you know, guppy, I don't know if whales are guppies when they start out, but they're little, you know, those little little swimmy guy, whatever you want to call him. If, if, if from that point on, God had created it and allowed it to preserve that no animals, you know, predators would eat it or anything, to allow it to reach this point in this time. I mean, God is sovereign. You know, I think about it. Um, I know the women are going through Revelation, and uh, I'm sure they're past chapter 9. But in chapter 9, if you recall, you women, and if those of you that read the book of Revelation, in verse 15, there's these four angels 
And they're described, it says, they had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year. That's, that was their task. And so, man, God is so sovereign. God is in control. Well, let's get into chapter 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly. Now, from the context, and we don't know for sure, but from the context, it would seem like he waited three days and three nights before he prayed. Um, I think maybe he made the same mistake that we often do. Um, I know sometimes when I've sinned against the Lord, I'm walking in disobedience, I think God can't listen to me. You know, he's not going to listen to my prayers and stuff. And so I feel like I'm unworthy to pray to the Lord. Maybe that's the way Jonah felt. Um, but you know, that's the, actually that's the time when we should be praying to the Lord because I think that's what the enemy wants to do, right? When we're in sin, what does he want to do? He wants to keep us isolated. He wants to keep us in shame and, and he wants to keep us to a place where we are just miserable and we feel like all things are hopeless. The last thing the enemy wants you and I to do is to pray. And yet this is the best time to pray. You know, sometimes when we're in sin, we're disobedient to the Lord. We don't even want to be in fellowship with other Christians because we feel condemned. But again, man, this is the time and the place when we should be gathered together. That's the body of Christ. You know, we're that we're we're to be we're all sinners. I hate to break it to you all, but we're all sinners. We all blow it. We all we all miss the mark. We're hypocrites. All, I think all of us are hypocrites at one time or another, in one way or another. But we're here together. But you see, the enemy wants to keep us separate. So anyways, Jonah prayed to the Lord from uh, the fish's belly. And what's interesting about his prayer is a lot of what Jonah prays, they're little snippets of various psalms. Uh, and, you know, again, Jonah was a prophet of the Lord, so he would have been aware of these psalms. But one thing you've got to remember, he didn't have a scroll of the book of Psalms with him. I'm sure he didn't. And if he did, it would be all soggy, right? He probably couldn't even read it. Not only that, but he's in the belly of a whale. Again, remember I said a whale? He's in the belly of this great fish. And, uh, and, and you know, there's no lights. There's no flashlights or anything. So how could he read it? And yet various psalms are coming to his heart as he's praying. Why is that? That's because the word of God was in his heart. That's because he had read the word of God. He had knew these psalms. And now they're coming back to him as he's in this belly of this whale. You know, for you and I, what an encouragement for us to be in God's word. To read his word while we have the opportunity, while we have the light to open up the Bible and start reading it, committing it to memory, committing it into our hearts so that the time comes when there is darkness and we don't have the Bible in front of us. Man, God's word's there to comfort us and to encourage us. Verse 2, and he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Now, Sheol in this context, I believe, is referring to the grave. And this sounds very familiar to Psalm 18, verses 4 through 5. And again, you can go through a lot of these things that Jonah says, and you can almost see verbatim in different psalms these same phrases. In Psalm 18, that's one of David's psalms. And here, Jonah doesn't feel like he's surrounded by Sheol. You know, David describes his predicament in Psalm 18, and he feels like he's surrounded by Sheol. Jonah is literally in the belly of a fish. And for him, as far as he knows, at this point in his prayer anyways, this fish is going to be his grave. And so for him, this is a literal thing that he's experiencing. And it says that out of his affliction, he cried out to the Lord. In other words, out of his desperation, 
And again, I want to drill that home to all of us. You can pray to the Lord at any time from any place. And don't ever think that, oh, I can't pray. In fact, it's wrong to think, oh, now I'm worthy. Now I've done something good. Now the Lord can hear my prayer. Don't ever think that. That's, that's pride. But also, don't be hopeless to where you think, well, God's not going to listen to me. Always go to him, the Lord. You think about all the prophets that the Lord sent in the Old Testament. Hundreds and hundreds of years, prophet after prophet after prophet, going to Israel, going to Judah, begging them, encouraging them you know, to repent of their sins. God was always waiting for them to cry out to him. He says, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Again, recall God's sovereignty. Again, God caused the storm for a reason. God didn't allow the sailors to reach land. What would have happened if they had reached land? If you think in the middle of the storm, they were, they were able to row and they were able to beach, their, beach the ship or the boat, whatever, on, on some shore somewhere, and Jonah was, to be, uh, you know, was able to get off land. What would he have done? You think he would have at that point gone to, gone to Nineveh? I don't, I don't know, but I don't think so. I think he would have continued on foot as far as he could to get away from the Lord. So God caused the storm. God didn't allow the sailors to reach land. Um, God didn't allow Jonah to die in the sea either. They threw him overboard. He didn't allow them to die. God, did, uh, God appointed that fish to deliver Jonah. And God didn't let Jonah die in the belly of the fish either. Because that, you know, that could have been his grave. But you see, God's working in Jonah's life because he wants to effect a change in Jonah. He wants to change Jonah's trajectory of disobedience to obedience. And he's using this in Jonah's life. God loves Jonah. He's not out to destroy Jonah. Sometimes we get into these situations, we think God is punishing us or he's trying to destroy us. God doesn't. He loves you. He loves me. And so Jonah is crying from the belly of the fish and God hears him. God's just waiting for him to cry out. Verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. So it's interesting here because Jonah, you know, he knows that the sailors are the ones that actually threw him into this water, but he's also understanding that it's the Lord that caused it to take place. God's the one that cast him overboard. And, you know, sometimes if, and, you know, I've pulled some of these pictures that we'll look at in a few minutes off of the internet. And, you know, whenever I look at these pictures of Jonah, I type in Jonah and the whale or Jonah in the sea or something like this. There's always, they're always throwing Jonah and there's this whale in the distance, you know, with his mouth open and stuff. And I don't know that that's the case. Jonah probably was in the water for a while. Maybe he was trying to tread water. And, you know, that's a storm. So he's, I don't know if you've ever been in rough water like that, but I can't imagine, you know, you're swallowing seawater. You know, you're starting to go under. I don't think it happened. The, the whale was right there, you know, like in Veggie Tales. It's right there. And it's, um, I think he started drowning, literally. And then God appointed the fish at some point to swallow him. And so he says, all your waves... And your, all your billows and your waves passed over me. I think that was literally what was taking place at this moment. And this also is almost verbatim from Psalm 42, verse 7. That psalm was, uh, uh, was penned by the sons of Korah. And they were using that, of course, figuratively, I'm assuming. But Jonah here is experiencing it literally. 
Now, another thing I want to point out to you, I want you to listen to Psalm 116, verses 3 through 5. And it just sounds similar to what, what Jonah was saying. The pains of death surrounded me, and the pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I employ you, deliver my soul. And then the next verse says this. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. I don't know if you've ever gone through a very tough time in your life. Man, you're depressed or you're, you know, you've got some, you know, Something terrible, some tragedy in your life. The Psalms, man, I've, I cling to the Psalms in those times. I love the Psalms. And I can identify with the Psalms, as I'm sure you can too. You know, sometimes the psalmists, the, the Psalms, they start out with anger, like break the teeth of your, my enemies, you know. And there's all these things that are just this imprecatory prayers or Psalms, that they call them. You know, and, and they start out with anger or they start out with hopelessness. Or they start out with desperation, maybe tears, even depression in some cases. But soon, almost invariably, towards the end of the psalm, the whoever's penning it, they're praising the Lord. They're acknowledging God's character. If you look at this prayer of Jonah, he doesn't mention the character of the Lord at all. Jonah's prayer never mentions the character of God. It just continues focusing on Jonah's problems. The only time Jonah mentions the character of the Lord is in chapter 4, verse 2. He says, I know that you are gracious and merciful, uh, a merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. He's not worshiping the Lord in chapter 4. He's angry at God at this point. That's the only time that Jonah mentions the character of the Lord. Verse 4, Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. Did you catch what he just said? I've been cast out of your sight. Wait a minute, Jonah. <laughs> God didn't cast you out of his sight. You were fleeing from the presence of the Lord. You didn't want to be in the sight of the Lord. You were running away from him. And then he says, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. And when I was reading, I've been going through the Old Testament as I'm working my way through my own devotions. And, you know, it reminds me of Solomon's prayer in the Old Testament when he dedicated the temple. I don't know if you recall that anywhere, uh, anytime. But let me give you a paraphrase out of 1 Kings chapter 8. Uh, Solomon is dedicating the temple. And he's speaking to the Lord, praying to the Lord. And he says, when your people sin against you, again, I'm paraphrasing, and they suffer the consequences of their sin, when they come to their senses and turn from their sins and turn to you and toward this place, he's speaking of the temple, then hear and forgive. Jonah seems to be doing that or saying that. And I think Jonah's reminded of this from Scripture. Again, I don't think... He prayed the minute he was in the water. At least it doesn't seem that way. It seems like he waited three days and three nights. And I think at that point he realized he's not going to die. And I think he actually is thinking he's physically going to look up on the temple one more. He hasn't died yet. Again, that's my take. Verse 5. The waters surrounded me even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of to the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. I don't know how many of you remember the story of Pinocchio. Do you remember the story of Pinocchio? Uh, Geppetto, his dad, you know, he's swallowed by a whale. And, and he had some pretty comfortable 
comfortable digs, really, if you think about it. I mean, he's got, you know, he's got a table and a lantern, and it looks like he's even doing some laundry. I mean, you know, it's like, hey, this is, this ain't too bad. It's free rent, you know. Um, that's in the fairy tales. <laughs> Jonah wasn't as fortunate as that. If it was a whale, again, we don't know for sure, but if it was a whale, let me read this to you. And it's from Google, so it's got to be true. <laughs> the digestive systems of whales consists of an esophagus and compartmentalized stomach similar to that of the ruminants like cows or hippos and an intestine. Prey, whether ingested one at a time as in, a tooth whale, as in tooth whales or by the thousands as in baleen whales, are not chewed but rather swallowed whole. Then they pass into the esophagus where they are pushed toward the expandable stomach. <clears throat> Excuse me. The esophagus of the blue whale, uh, even if it takes in two to three tons of krill a day, measures just 15 to 25 centimeters long when it is fully extended. It's a narrow, small thing. The food then reaches the first stomach compartment, the rumen. Pre-digested food is stored there. This compartment breaks down the food by mechanical muscular movements called uh, peristalsis. Everything is then directed toward the main stomach or cardiac stomach where glands produce acid and enzymes used to digest the food. And this is the acids. It's hydrochloric acid and pepsin. The journey, then, uh, the journey continues through a narrow channel before finally reaching the last stomach compartment, the pylorus. The latter is characterized by the presence of numerous mucus glands that facilitate intestinal transit. I don't know how far he made it down that passage, by the way. <laughs> but listen, his body must have been squeezed by the esophagus and squeezed by that stomach lining. If it was a whale, it would have been a mammal. So the ten and I again I googled this, it's got to be true. Uh, Whale's internal temperature is 97 to 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Three days and three nights in 97 degrees Fahrenheit, clamped up in a clammy, wet environment. Um, Jonah's hot. I'm sure he's cramped. He's not like laying out there, you know, with a table and, a, and chairs. He's in complete darkness. He's all alone. In addition to that, stomach acid is starting to irritate his skin maybe even starting to burn his skin all over. And can you imagine the smell of being inside that? The smell would have been putrid. And then according to verse 6, Jonah has the sensation that the whale is diving deep down to the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. He's feeling this, obviously. He's in a distressful situation. But here's the thing. It's a self-inflicted distressful situation. It was caused by his disobedience. It's, in direct, it's a direct result of his sin and rebellion against the Lord. And the Lord is using this distressful situation not to punish Jonah, not to destroy Jonah, not even to provide a kosher meal for the whale. He's, not, he's trying to deliver and transform him. He's trying to give Jonah a course correction in his life. Verse 7. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you in your holy temple. It's not like Jonah said, oh, that's right, God's in heaven. Let me pray to him. It's not like Jonah forgot the Lord and suddenly remembered him. 
If you'll recall from chapter 1, back when he was on board the ship while the storm raged, the captain begged Jonah, Jonah, call out to your God. Maybe he'll deliver you. There's no record in Jonah chapter 1 of him doing that. doesn't say. Jonah had told the sailors he feared the Lord of the heaven and earth, and that, of course, freaked them out, you know, because, yeah, I'm, I'm running from the Lord who created the sea, you know, being as superstitious, they're like, and the sea is storming, you know. But Jonah mentions the Lord there. He didn't forget about the Lord. But now Jonah is coming face to face with death. He's thinking he's going to die at some point anyways. He's certainly unable to change his predicament in any way. And he calls out to the Lord for deliverance. Verse 8. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. I really struggled with this. What's Jonah saying here? What's he trying to say? It's a true statement, by the way. I'm not, I'm, it's a true statement. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercies. There's nothing wrong with what Jonah is declaring here. But I had to think, is Jonah really all of a sudden recognizing the error of his ways? And now he's, now he's, you know, he's, he's, he's recognizing this and he's acknowledging that. Well, here's my take. Jonah prayed while he was in the belly of the fish. Those psalms came to his heart, but he didn't record his prayer until he was delivered from the fish. Is it possible, okay, I'm not saying thus saith the Lord, is it possible Jonah is crediting his deliverance with the fact that he's a Jew who worships Jehovah and not one of these pagan idol, he, idol worshipers, the heathens? Jonah may have been inspired by Psalm 31, Verse 6, I have hated those who regard useless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will be glad and rejoice in your mercy, for you have considered my trouble. You have known my soul in adversities and have not shut me up into the hand of my enemy. You have set my feet in a wide place. Why did I say that? Well, you know, why, why did I even question that? Well, it's interesting when you consider chapter 1. The pagan sailors, the storm's raging, they think they're going to die, they end up getting on their knees and praying. Now, albeit it's to false gods, right? They're praying to idols, but they're praying, they're seeking. Jonah, at that time, didn't pray at all. It's not recorded on, in Jonah chapter 1 that he prayed at all. There's no mention of it. The pagan sailors, they wanted to find out, hey, who sinned? Who caused this to happen? Jonah didn't want to. He didn't want to say, oh, it was me, by the way. It wasn't until the lot was cast and he was basically, his sin was uncovered. It's only when he was exposed that he acknowledged it. And then if you think about the pagan sailors, they didn't right away, well, we got to kill you. They wanted to spare Jonah's life. They had compassion on Jonah trying to get him to the land, not wanting to throw him overboard. And all this time, the whole reason why Jonah was on that ship was because he hated the Ninevites and he wanted to see them destroyed, those pagan idolaters. So when I read this, in almost every instance in Jonah chapter 1, Jonah is acting less righteous than the pagan idolaters that he's condemning here in chapter 2. And again, this is my take. It seems to me that there's a level of spiritual pride in Jonah. I really sense that. We have to be careful of spiritual pride as well. You know, we can get into this attitude, well, I'm a born-again believer. I've been blood-bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm declared righteous in God's presence. I've been justified by faith. 
And we can think that because of that, you know, God's never going to do anything. If we're, if we're walking in sin, we're walking in disobedience, we think we're immune from God's discipline. That's, that's spiritual pride. We've got to be careful against that. It seems to me that this verse is showing us Jonah's heart at this point. And I think it's spiritually prideful. But what about the next verse, verse 9? But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. You might be thinking, wait a minute, Pastor. <laughs> You're way off. And could be. It's possible. You might think, wait a minute. This proves that Jonah is a changed man. I mean, he says as much in verse 9. It seems like he's learned his lesson. Now he's going to obey the Lord. He's even acknowledging the Lord. And you, you could be very right with that. But if you are right... I want you to consider this. Now that he's acknowledging the Lord, is he now going to go and obey the Lord and go to Nineveh? I mean, as soon as he gets out of the fish, I'm on, I'm on my way to Nineveh. Look at the verse, first two verses of chapter 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Sorry, I messed up. Hit, I hit my, put my finger in the wrong spot. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. Why did Jonah have to be told the second time, Hey, get up and go to Nineveh? Because I don't think that was his plan. What was Jonah saying then in verse 9? Recall back in verse 4, I said, I will look again toward your holy temple. And now he's saying, I'm going to pay what I, have what I have vowed. Is it possible? Is it possible Jonah does what we frequently do when we make vows to God? God, if you get me out of this bind that I'm in, man, I'm going to be a better Christian. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to read my Bible every morning. I'm going to read it for 10 minutes. I'm going to set apart 10 minutes to read the Word. I'm going to start witnessing to my neighbors, my coworkers. I'm even going to start going to church more. Basically, we say that sometimes. Right? I'm going to be a better Christian if you'll deliver me. And I'm wondering if that's what Jonah is saying right here. I think it's possible Jonah is thinking, now that he's delivered, he's going to go to Jerusalem and worship the Lord at the temple. Nothing wrong with that, Right? I think what Jonah is doing, however, is hoping that the Lord forgot his earlier command. I really think that. And I think that's why the Lord's saying, Jonah, get up, go to Nineveh. Because I don't think he was going to do that right away. You think about it. Jonah traveled far and wide and, and even deep, <laughs> for that matter, in his disobedience. But the Lord brought him back to that place where he went off the track the first time. God brought him back to that one place. And God will do that in your and my life. He'll bring us back to that point of our departure from him. You know, he's not going to move you to phase B in your obedience until you've completed phase A. And that's the case with Jonah. Jonah, I gave you a command earlier to do. You've got to go back and do this. You still have to do it. I'm not moving on to something else. And then Jonah finally declares salvation is of the Lord. And then, of course, the Lord commands the fish. Look at verse 10. So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. I like my translation. It vomited Jonah onto dry land. Jonah was hurled into the sea by the sailors, and now he's being hurled in a whole different way on shore by this great fish. 
I don't want to gross you out. We do have donuts in the back later, but I know what human vomit smells like, <laughs> if you think about it. Um, in fact, you know, when my kids were younger, my wife's got this gag reflex, and if the kids puked or if the dogs, we had a couple dogs, if they puked, I'm the one that had to clean it. And I didn't mind. I didn't have that gag reflex, so I didn't like the smell, but it's like I cleaned it up. My wife couldn't clean it up. Can you imagine what Jonah smelled like? I mean, I know what human vomit smells like, but I can't imagine what whale puke smells like. Now, what's interesting between verse 9, some people see a connection of Jonah's declaration in verse 9, salvation of the Lord, with the result in verse 10. What about Jonah's sacrifice of thanksgiving? I mean, aren't we supposed to be thankful? I talked about that earlier when we were coming up here to worship the Lord. Let's, let's sing from our hearts thankfulness to the Lord. Jonah's declarations are good and right here. There's nothing wrong with what Jonah's saying here. It's good. It's biblical. It's right. We should be thanking the Lord. But I think, and again, this is my take, I think Jonah is thanking the Lord for delivering him from the sea and not delivering him from his sin. That's the one thing that I think is missing from Jonah's prayer, and that's contrition. Contrition is the state of feeling remorseful and penitent. Jonah does, uh, Jonah does declare salvation does belong to the Lord, and Jonah's definitely thanking the Lord for his physical deliverance, and we should be thanking the Lord for everything that he does in our lives. But listen, the greatest deliverance isn't our physical deliverance, it's our deliverance from sin. There seems to be no mention of Jonah's sin. There's no brokenness. There's no repentance. I really believe this is the missing component in Jonah's prayer, and that's contrition. And the reason why, I want you to compare this, and I read it at the beginning of our service, I want you to compare this to David's prayer in Psalm 51. David's prayer, if you're familiar with Psalm 51, this was after he uh, committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then to hide his sin, he, he allowed, uh, actually uh, set up, arranged for the murder of, of uh, Uriah the Hittite. And he was trying to keep it undercover. He didn't want to be exposed, but God sent a prophet that exposed David's sin. And David repented of the Lord. What do you say here? Look at verse 1 of 50, uh, chapter 51, verses 1 through 3. He says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Do you see a little bit of a difference? Jonah never mentions sin once in any of his prayer. Jonah says he's going to sacrifice to the Lord with the voice of thanksgiving and he'll pay what he vowed. Nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing to do. But look at Psalm, uh, verse 15 of Psalm 51. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and a contrite heart, these, O God, you will not despise. Now, I've made a lot of conjectures this morning. I don't know if that's the right word, but I've made a lot of assumptions this morning. I don't know Jonah's heart, okay? I'm not saying this is Jonah's heart. God knows Jonah's heart. Just like I don't know your heart and you don't know my heart, but the Lord knows my heart. But from all appearances, outwardly, he may seem like he's a changed man, but when you get to chapter 4, 
and you look at his attitude in chapter 4, Jonah's being outwardly obedient, but I think his heart is still in rebellion against the Lord. In chapter 4, he's angry with the Lord, and this is an important point. He makes an excuse for his disobedience. A broken and a contrite heart doesn't make excuses for sin. But Jonah makes an excuse in chapter 4, verse 2. He says, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish. For I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. To me, and it might just be me, but to me this doesn't sound like a contrite (laughs) spirit and a broken spirit. It doesn't seem like that. Jonah was uncomfortable with the fish. Man, he was in a hot place. The heat was on. He was cramped, unable to wiggle himself free. He had, he was just, he's there, you know. He had no options, but he had about three or four days, or three days to think about why he was in this predicament. And the only thing he could do is to turn to the Lord in prayer. Crisis is always a good motivator for prayer doesn't mean that's the only time we should pray to the Lord. We shouldn't, right? But it's a good motivator. And sometimes I think the Lord allows crisis to bring us to a place where we'll seek him instead of our own strength, our own abilities. I think if Jonah could have got out of that by himself, he would have. But he was stuck, (laughs) literally stuck. There's nothing he could do. And so he cries out to the Lord. What's my point in all of this? I've been in disobedience to the Lord before. He's, he's disciplined me. I've, I've, I've been in distressful situations. That has been my own cause. I don't think I'm the only one here, though. Listen, if the Lord's allowed you to be in your own self-created crisis because of your sin, he doesn't want grudgingly outward obedience from you. He doesn't want you to just go through the motions of obedience. He loves you, and he wants your and my heart to be broken. That's what he's seeking, a broken and a contrite heart. And again, I think that's what's missing in Jonah's prayer here. In my devotions, it was kind of interesting. It was Saturday morning, I was in Second Chronicles, and I was reading about King Ahaz of Judah. If you know about King Ahaz, uh, his father was Jotham. And Jotham was a godly king, did right in the eyes of the Lord. Ahaz was an evil king, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. What did he do? He started adopting the practices of the pagan cultures around him. All those nations that were worshiping idols and doing horrendous things, you know, sexual immorality, all that stuff, Ahaz not only adopted, but he promoted it in the land. The Bible even says that he passed his children, his own children, through the fire. That's human sacrifice. It's, it's the forerunner of, of abortion today, basically. He, he passed his children through the fire to Molech. And because of his sin, the Lord delivered Judah, because he's the king of Judah, delivered Judah into the hand of the king of Syria, the king of Israel, who they were enemies at this time, and the Edomites. Ahaz was in a self-created crisis. He was in a crisis, but it was his own doing because of his sin. But what was interesting when I was reading Second Chronicles is chapter 28, verse 22, it says this, Now in the time of his distress, King Ahaz became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. That distress, God's discipline, 
it didn't change his heart. He ended up finishing not well at all. He ended up dying. And verse 27 says, So Ahaz rested with his fathers, and they buried him in the city, or buried him, I guess, however you want to pronounce it, in Jerusalem, but they did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel. In other words, he was buried, but or buried, <laughs> but he wasn't honored in his death. So God delivered Jonah, and Jonah is rightfully thankful. In fact, he should be thankful for God delivering him. But I don't sense a broken and a contrite heart. There's no mention of Jonah's sin uh, and his disobedience in this. And so the Lord has some more work to do in Jonah's heart, as we're going to see when we get to chapter 4. So if, in your, if you're in a place today where it's a self-created, you know, we get into crises, and sometimes they're not, there's nothing we've done. So not every crisis is because of my sin. Sometimes the Lord's, maybe it might even have nothing to do with us. Maybe the Lord is trying to use you as a witness to your neighbor to see you suffering and to see how you handle it. That, that's possible. Um, God does different things in different ways. We, we, I don't, you know, I, I can't say, well, this is why God's doing this. But I do know that sometimes because of sin, God does discipline his children. The Bible tells us that. And if you're in that situation, you're in a self-created crisis, you're in distress, I just want to leave you with one thing. The Lord chastens those whom he loves. He didn't give up on Jonah. He's not going to give up on you or myself either. I'm going to close with this last verse. Hebrews 12, 11, Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, after it, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You know, sometimes you see people that go over and over, the same thing over and over and over again, the same distress. Why? Because they haven't learned. They haven't changed. And so God's still doing that work in their hearts, trying to bring them to that place where they will finally have a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Now, worship team, you guys can come on up.